Graham Thompson's name has filled plenty of my favourite publications, including, oh gosh, well, you better do the role, role called Guardian, The Word. Yeah, um, Uncut, Telegraph, Spectator, The Arts Desk. And on and on and on. But notably, uh, I espied your book, uh, which is Themes for Great Cities. Good title. Um, which is a book about simple minds. They were... Where do you start when you're doing a chronicle of a very important band like Simple Minds? Well, well, I followed my enthusiasms, really, because it, it's not a book about all of Simple Minds' career. It's a book about the very early beginnings of that, the kind of first stirrings of that band, which were, I think, fiercely experimental and, and uh, quite pioneering and abstract. So, um, And the title, I can't, I can't take you know, credit for the title. It's a, it's a, it's a, song, uh, a song title of theirs. Um, which kind of sums up, I think, the atmosphere and the, the sort of majesty and power of those early records. So um, th- that's where I started. I started by taking records out of my record collection, re- records I've loved for uh, decades and which uh, were kind of obscured in some ways, I think, because of the success of the band in the mid-'80s when they became a, a kind of huge arena-strafing uh, behemoth and became in some ways a different thing entirely. So um, I wanted to go back to the beginnings of that band. They played Live Aid, famously. They did play Live yes. Aid, yeah. They were introduced by Jack Nicholson. Around that time, you know, things went into a kind of massive, uh, uh, you know, overdrive for, for the band. And um, they cha- I, I can't think, I struggle to think of a band that changed quite so much in the space of two or three years. This incredibly kind of compressed acceleration. And uh, some things were gained and, and many things were lost in that transition. So, um that was the story I wanted to tell. I had quite a specific story I wanted to tell. So it's not a kind of 42-year chronicle of, of one of our biggest bands. It's a bit more sort of focused than that. And the great thing is that Simple Minds are still going in a much-changed lineup. And I didn't realise just how far Simple Minds stock had fallen before the arenas that they play now. They were, I think they were just playing clubs. Well, they've gone through, yeah, they've gone through many kind of different um, evolutions. I think if you're going to be... Very few bands, maybe U2 might be one example, who have really stayed at that level of success for that length of time. It's very hard to do. Stones? Yeah. I suppose the Stones too, but, but the Stones rest very much on, on that kind of classic album catalogue, I suppose. But certainly by the turn of the millennium, they were in a very kind of lowly place in some ways, you know, critically and commercially. They'd lost their way. Um, and they didn't ever take that kind of 80s revival uh, but, you know, they never did the Rewind festivals or anything like yes, that. Yes, so, that's um, right. They were, all, they were always kind of trying to, to still find a way of, of doing what they do. And they have succeeded. You know, they're, they're in a really good place at the moment. I saw them just a couple of weeks ago in, in, you know, in Glasgow playing 15,000 people. And, and wow. it seems that they have found a way, finally, of kind of marrying uh, all the different parts of their career successfully in a sort of two-and-a-half-hour show. And I think... There's something about the democracy of how we listen to music now, the, the, the way that it sort of tramples over, in many ways, critical canards or consensus. And, and I think people just hear a lot of good songs now in Simple Minds, a lot of different styles of music, but a lot of good music. And uh, they can sort of just take that for what it is. I was listening to Tracks of My Years with Ken Bruce. I don't know if Ken is part of your day as a freelancer. Uh, we might get to that later. Ken Bruce, National Treasure. Uh, still going and uh, Hole of the Moon by the Waterboys came on and I thought do you know I never ever actively put that song on but whenever I hear it I never turn it off I think I feel the same about the big Simple Mind songs I'm actually more of a fan of all the things she said than Don't You and Alive and Kicking Alive and Kicking of course uh, must have helped their pensions because it was used 30 years ago when Sky launched the Premier League that's true. I mean, there's songs that you kind of can be a bit sniffy about when, when you're not hearing them. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And when you hear them, you go, wow, that's, that's, that still sounds pretty good coming out of the radio and I'm not going to turn over or turn it off. And to have a few of those in your, in your locker, as they say, I think is, is no bad thing for a band. So, and Alive and Kicking, yeah, which is kind of often forgotten about as a sort of follow-up to Don't You Forget About Me, but was as equally a big yeah. song and I think a better song. And sounds great when it kind of that, that breakdown where it's just the drums and the bass, that rhythm section locks in. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. 
their only number one was Belfast Child. Can you tell me, as someone who was an adult during that time, why that got to number one? Yeah, I was barely an adult, really. I was—I would have been uh, probably 15, 16 when that when that got to number one. Um, I think it got to number one because they'd been away for four years at that point, and probably anything they released would have got to number one. They were coming off the back of that huge success, had been away. There was quite a lot of anticipation um, from for them returning. So, um, I mean, it's quite a bold song, you know, seven-minute dirge, really. Goes on, on and on and on, yeah. Based on Irish air. And, of course, it did nothing in America. I mean, it, it killed them in America because it, it wasn't what was required as a follow-up to um, the, their breakthrough success. So I think that's one of my... It's, not, it's, it's one of my less favourite aspects of the band at that point. And it's also the point where Simple Minds feel they, they need to say something, you know, in, in big letters. They need to impart some kind of message in that post-Live Aid, post-Mandela Day, post-Amnesty, post-Sun City, that kind of environment where it was incumbent on artists or so seeming to to say something meaningful about the world around them. Um, I don't think that did Simple Minds many favours. Yes, whereas, and this isn't a show bigging up you too, but... The comparison is that Charlie Birchall said Simple Minds were three albums ahead of U2 and eventually U2 caught up, surpassed and made a lot of money because Paul Houston wanted to be... Well, I don't know. Because Paul Houston and Jim Kerr are both purveyors of this kind of messianic rock music that Marcus Mumford and Chris Martin have taken to stadiums nowadays. But history will judge Bono as the Pope-meeting, globe-bestriding entertainer and Jim Kerr, a very good songwriter. I think we forget about you 2 songwriting, whereas Simple Minds will always be known as writers, first and foremost. Is that because they paid close attention to the songcraft in the early days? No, and I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with that okay. at all, really. I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. I think Simple Minds and you 2 both have, you know, 15 great songs that would fill any set admirably. Um, Simple Minds were the opposite of songwriters in the early days. They were, uh, they were making noise, they were trying to make interesting shapes with their music. They weren't actually, in, they weren't even bothered about making songs. Um, so the, 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 one of the things I wanted to write about, going way back from Belfast Child and, and all that stuff, which is not stuff I write about in the book, it, it, it's it's a, create, a creative collective, and it's, it's what happens when five people are all invested in the creative process, and they're all playing something interesting for their own for their own amusement and for their own interest. And, and what what happens in that kind of chemical combustion is, is fascinating to me. And it's why I wanted to write about a band this time rather than a, a solo artist. So um, they, they weren't songwriters, but they became songwriters many years later. But at that point, they were they were musicians who were trying to create an interesting noise for themselves and then shape something out of that. And if you listen to Real to Real Cacophony, their second record, or or empires and dance. There's nothing there you could play on a on a guitar. There's nothing there you could sit down and say, "This is my song." Yeah, it's entirely incumbent on on the musicians all contributing their part. And what comes out of that is something extraordinary, but it, it can't really be recreated in a in a kind of songwriting session. So they were almost a studio band early on. No, they were, no, no, they weren't a studio band. They were a fantastic live band as well. But they they were a, a band that relied upon being a band, that they had to be a band. They, they couldn't be, it wasn't the singer and the guitar player mm-hmm. writing the songs. Uh, the songs were absolutely necessitated in the fact that there was five of them in the room at the same time playing. Um, and that's that's what's fascinating for me. That, that's what I write about in the book. Fab, and the book is Themes for Great Cities. Has the reception of the book, both among Simple Minds fans and the band themselves, been pleasant? It has, yeah. No, it's been great. It's been, been a lot of love. I think there was, you know, my hunch was there was a lot of love out there for this period of, of the band and those records that they made. And uh, that's been proved correct. I think people have really loved going back to those records in some cases that they may not have heard for a while or just discovering them for the first time or just being reminded of how good they were. And the band have been very positive. You know, I spoke, Jim and Charlie are the only, Jim Kerr and Charlie Birchall are, are the only two remaining members of the band. But, you know, I spoke to all the original band members for the book. They were very open, very honest, very reflective, which is what you want as a writer. You want people who are who are not trying to cover their tracks at this stage. And I think with, you know, 40 years of hindsight, they're, they're able to, to look back on it very honestly. So, 
you'll be very gratified. You know, you always want to write the book that you want to write, and, and it's, it's not an authorised book. It's not been signed off by the band. You know, it's my book. It's my take on on that part of their career. But it's it's nice when it's it, it, you feel that it's, uh, you know, it's meeting quite a lot of, uh, love out there, yeah. And this Simple Minds book is a change, not just because they're a band rather than a solo artist, but your last four books have all been about dead rock men, uh, and Simple Minds are, well, they are both alive and you can finish that sentence. It's book nine. I have this book, uh, which let's go all the way back. Complicated Shadows, The Life and Music of Elvis Costello, published by Canongate. So instantly it has the imprimatur. I've been to Canongate's office on the Royal Mile. My jaw hit the floor. The amount of not just volume, but quality of book. Uh, and I, I think that might be the only Canongate book you've written. Yeah. You credit Jamie Bing in the acknowledgements. Uh, but it's dedicated for my own three distracted women, Jen, Kat, and my mother, Kathleen. Uh, how long did it take to write this book? Oh, goodness. Well, I, was, I mean, it was published when I was 31, I think. So, yeah, probably half of that, 15 years maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it was a bit daunting, I think. Looking back, you know, it's a lot to take on for my first book. I'm not sure, not entirely sure I had the skill set at that time to, to take on someone as complicated, as the title suggests, as Elvis Costello. Um, but I had a really clear aim with that book, which was, you know, Costello is someone that everybody has an opinion about their music, and, and every critic tries to dissect the music. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a, a, a biography of the person and try and kind of unlock, try and get the facts down on the page, really. Um, so it was a kind of anti-critical biography in a way, uh, which I think, in retrospect, was probably a mistake. That There's less of me in that book than I would like. There's less of my take on his music and my love of his music than, than I would put in now. But it was a kind of sincere attempt to, to try and get something down because it was also, it's probably the only book I've written that's kind of, and it wasn't pre-internet, but it was pre that real pr- proliferation of information that's now out there. But that has changed profoundly the, the purpose of books like this. I think you know we don't we don't we don't need books that, that give us chapter and verse in terms of information because it's all out there. Um, this was written slightly prior to that being the case, so that there is a kind of an attempt to get things down on the page. So you know, it was a, I think it was a valiant effort um, at that time, but. As I say, I, I would like to think as I go on that there's more, there's kind of more of me in, in the books now. And those books uh, include books about Willie Nelson called The Outlaw. I'll skip book three just for now because we'll, we'll deal with that later. Under the Ivy by Kate Bush, about Kate Bush. The Resurrection of Johnny Cash. Behind the Locked Door about George Harrison, Cowboy Song about Phil Linnett, and then Small Hours about John Martin. Um, so this book, Book Nine, you've answered my question in what's the difference between Book One and Book Nine. Um, but given that all a lot of music journalism is online now, would you have to, for the earlier books, physically go to Collindale or now the British Library and look at the inkies in order to get quotes? Yeah. Yeah, there was a little bit of that, and, and just calling in. You know, I used to call in a lot of cuttings, you know, a lot of old music magazines. With Willie Nelson, it was slightly different because obviously the bulk of that stuff is was in America. Certainly in the early days, I had access to Lexis Nexus, which was an Good. old online kind of catalog source. So that that, that was very helpful. Um, and I went, you know, I went over there for three weeks uh, to Austin and, and parts of Texas to get a feel for that. So it was. Yeah, it was a bit more kind of analogue back in, in, in those days, I suppose, um, having to kind of do the groundwork. But I always feel, you know, it's part of kind of the process. I think you really need to feel that you're standing on solid ground in terms of the research and you, you know the terrain. Again, I think it's probably it's used maybe a little more lightly now, uh, the research. I, I think you get better at, at what to put in and how to convey things that you've learned without being too heavy-handed with it. But yeah, it, it, it's 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 easier in some ways now. But I suppose the challenge now is because there is so much out there. It's, it's what do you want to say? Well, what are, why are you writing this book? What is there to say um, about whatever artist you're writing about that isn't you know isn't online or, or isn't in uh, you know fanzines or, or isn't common knowledge? 
I did a bit of work about Willie Nelson because I present a show called In the Red Dirt about music from Texas and Oklahoma. So I play Willie Nelson most weeks. And in fact, at the end of April, he turned 89. So you wrote The Outlaw when he was a sprightly 73. But around that time, there was a big, um, mainly because probably they thought he was going to die quite soon. So Nashville kind of woke up to the fact, crap, we've got to acknowledge him. And they had a live show, a TV show, a live CD, videos and everything else. And he's still alive. Uh, Lucas Nelson, his son, it must have been a young child. So yeah. you were writing about Micah and Lucas, who now play with Willie. Uh, do you still listen to the modern output? I can try and keep up with it. You know, he's very prolific, as you suggest. I mean, there's, you know, there used to be like four albums a year. Yeah. Um, it's funny, because there is, I mean, I remember that the, the ending of my book on Willie is kind of Eli Jack. And it, it, there is a sense of, you know, the light fading and the sun setting, which, of course... Uh, thankfully hasn't proved to be the case you know it, it, he's still going reasonably strong and there is there is that thing about writing about someone who's alive is 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 the ending you know how do you end a book about someone who's still very much productive costello was a great a great kind of example of that you know how on earth do you finish a book about Elvis costello who is and, and was perhaps even more so at that time an incredibly productive artist Someone like Kate Bush is slightly different because the chronology is, is much more spaced out. So, yeah, all these challenges present themselves. Um, but I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of Willie. And he has kind of ascended now to national or international. Yeah, treasure. he's like Dolly Parton or Paul McCartney yeah. at that level. Yeah. And again, that, that, I always find that quite tempting because, a, because a, you know, once you put up a statue of someone, either metaphorically or literally, then things become smoothed over an awful lot. And, and the version of the person that you read about or hear about becomes very simplified and... That's always quite a nice challenge. You know, it's the same thing with with Phil Lynott. Uh, you know, there's this big statue of him in Dublin. And it's like, okay, so he's become something else now. Um, let's try and chip away at that and get to the human being underneath it. Yeah. It's fascinating. Willie Nelson's life, uh, which he's told in several autobiographies and certain stories like his guitar trigger and the house burning and the tax story and the marijuana and all of that. Ultimately, like David Bowie or Mark Bolan, he found it very difficult to get a foothold as a performer. Yeah, he wrote a lot of fantastic hits, but one of them he sold and then had to buy back. Probably Walls, I think he sold for like $50 or something crazy. Yeah, I mean, he was living a really, you know, hand-to-mouth, hard-scrabble existence, and he wasn't someone who, you know, will be surprised to learn. He wasn't someone who was kind of invested in um, protecting his future in many ways. You know, he lived a, a pretty hand-to-mouth and... and uh, really lawless life for many many years but you know that he wouldn't be the performer or the writer that he is if he didn't if he didn't do that i think you forget in the 60s how completely kind of corporate uh, country music was i mean it is now but but back then you know it was it, everything was done in a very uh, strategized way and the idea of willie wanting to play with his band you know record his band live at panther hall that fantastic record which where he plays with his live band because he, he really wants to get his live band on record, which, of course, wasn't the done thing. You know, you went to Nashville and you, um, you know, CBS, Studio A or B, and you, and you cut with the, the studio musicians there. And you had that homogenous sound um, and that country politan sound that came out. So he was always sort of batting against the waves. And, uh, yeah, his time didn't come till really the mid-70s, you know, The Red-Headed Stranger, which is yeah. deeply and deeply strange, primitive record for someone to make a breakthrough from in their mid-40s, as it was at that point. They thought it was a demo album. And I also didn't know that such a celebrated figure in country music, he was kicked out the Opry for a couple of years. He was kicked out everywhere, really. Yeah. Because, he, you know, he doesn't... And yeah, yes, he is country music, but also, um, you know, those connections with the great American songbook and Sinatra and all those things which became more manifest later on. You can hear that in his early writing as well. It's kind of very classical in a sense. It's not just, uh, not not denigrating country music, which I absolutely love, but it, but I think it roams a lot wider than that. Um, so it, it took a few turns of the wheel for him to be recognised for what he is, which is kind of beyond genre, beyond any kind of categorization. And just to put it in perspective, Willie Nelson, born in 1933, he was about 21 months older than Elvis Presley. So that is the kind of lineage that he has. The Outlaw came out in 2006. I shot a man in Reno. What a great idea for a book. Um, murder, death, 
in pop. And there's also a top 40 at the end of it. One of the things I do in this series of music interviews is that as well as the 78, I've got the 45. So I'm compiling 45 top 40 playlists, compilations, and you have done the same about songs with death in them. At what point did it all get too macabre when you were researching this? Yeah, it never it never felt that macabre actually because there's a, there's a good dollop of humour in there and and you know it's approached thematically. So there are those sort of slightly or very camp death songs, sixties death songs like "Tell Laura I Love Her" and things like that. So it, it wasn't. I did try and balance up the, the kind of gravitas of it with something a bit less serious and because that's, that is how pop music has interacted with the subject over the years. You know, it's swung from being extremely kind of um, sombre and, and serious to being throwaway and, and lighthearted and finding the humour in it. So it wasn't, it, wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a sort of depressing or negative experience to write it. It was a lot of fun, actually. And it, it opened my ears to quite a lot of music that I wasn't, maybe that familiar with you know i wrote a chapter about about rap music and gangster rap music which was a real education for me um which you know i really enjoyed doing that and um and some things which, which were much more i guess in my ballpark like like folk music and country music which are things that um are more easily accessible i think for me so yeah and doing, who, who doesn't love a list it was great to do a list top 40 list of the greatest death songs was was huge fun to write we actually did a little cd a little CD-sized cover, um, which we did to promote the book in America, which had, um, which was printed all those uh, all those songs as, as a CD booklet, which was really nice. Wow, uh, it was a lot, lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, Maxwell Silverhammer by Paul McCartney. It's incredible to note that didn't what didn't one of them just leave the studio because he was so fed up at McCartney trying to get uh, this variety kind of nonsense cabaret song perfect. And it sounds too perfect, the recording. It sounds mannered. Um, but it's, again, yeah, it's, it's one of the, I can't really think off the top of my head, many Beatles songs where there's a death in it. No, well, I, I mean, I, I wrote in the book about Eleanor Rigby, which is, mm. I think is, is the other kind of, you know, Maxwell Silverhammer is, is, a, is a joke, effectively. I think quite a nicely well-turned-out joke, actually. It's but, like a scaffold tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. But, um, you know, Eleanor Rigby... Is, is a song about um, the other side of that, isn't it? it it's a song that, that, that explores the life in, in, in terms of the manner of the death, which I think is very interesting. That's an incredibly deep and, and profoundly kind of um, sad song for the biggest band, biggest pop band yeah. in the world to, to be writing and recording uh, at that point and to do it justice in terms of the musical setting as well. So, yeah, I just spoke to Paul McCartney. There was a couple of songs. Um, there's another one he wrote now, I'm trying to remember. Oh, um, here today. Yeah, no, no, there was a solo. It was it was quite um, it was quite recent when I spoke to him. It was a solo song. It's a fascinating subject, and um, it doesn't have to be depressing because I think it reflects on on life just as much as it does upon death and how we how we deal with these things. And Richard Thompson was a kind of key interview for me for that book because he's you know of course deeply invested in the folk tradition and understands the use and the purpose of these songs, how they are used by communities or were used by communities in order to bring, you know, solace and understanding to these subjects. So that was fun. Music journalists, as you know, love things that end in five or zero. Paul McCartney is 80 next month. What is there new to be said about Paul McCartney that you can't dig up from a feature about his 75th, 70th, 65th, 60th, 64th. Paul McCartney's life is more chronicled, I think, than even Napoleon. Yeah, I don't think there's anything new to be said. Um, that's, uh, but I don't think that's the purpose of, um, of much musical journalism in a way. You know, it's like when we go to the pub and we want to hear the same stories we heard 10 years ago. Do uh, whipping they post. Become, they become folk myths in mm. a way. Um, it's difficult. And actually, you know, there are occasions where if you try and correct the narrative, it's not really welcomed. You know, if you're trying to bring in something fresh, well, actually, that, that isn't quite how that story happened. People like to hear the old stories. And actually, when you get to the age of 80, Paul McCartney won't be telling a new version of his life story now. And I'm struck often by when I interview people, and it's one of the challenges of when you're writing a book, is that you need to, you need to stop them giving you the after-dinner version of their life. 
that you need to stop them giving you the polished anecdote and you need to go, but stop, hang on a minute, that doesn't work because that didn't, those dates don't align. That didn't happen then. It couldn't have happened then. Uh, how did it actually happen? Try and remember how it happened. Don't tell me the version that you tell everybody else because it, it doesn't quite stand up. And so, so that's the process of research that is quite tricky because you, you, these guys have given interviews for 40, 50, 60 years and um, they are not going to sit down and, and dig out a whole new version of their life story for you. So you need to try and not catch them out, but you need to point out that, that you need something a little bit more substantial out of them. And that, that's difficult. And, and, and as, as things go on and we're still talking to the same people, it, it gets harder and harder to get anything new out of them. So you need to work at it. Mariah Carey just says, there was perhaps in The Guardian, the last interview I read with Mariah Carey to promote the book that she wrote, she just said, well, if you look at page 206, I've already written about that. So she, she knows that she doesn't want to waste time regurgitating the old stories. But then there are some acts, I mean... It's unfair to bring in Paul Merson, but Paul Merson was on TV again talking about the wretchedness of his life. And we're seeing that with like Paul... I know you've written football stuff as well, so I'll briefly go into football. There are these footballers that become figures of fun or of sympathy, like Chris Kamara, who's finally stepping down from Soccer Saturday. Um, if you couldn't read any other piece about certain musicians... Whom would you never want to read about again? Oh goodness, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think about it like that because there is. I mean, having just said all what I just said, there is always the other, you know, the chance that a really good writer will write something really interesting. And I think that's where the focus has shifted now. It's. It's not. It's about what you have to say about an artist. It's about your take on it and about your vision on it. It's not really so much about, you know, a Q and A with an old rock star because I'm not sure you're going to get um, a lot out of that. But there is always going to be a case for a good writer coming at any subject and any from any. You know, I'm just, I'm just reading "Let's Do It" by Bob Stanley. You know, he's writing about music hall, you know, Dixieland jazz, the period between 1900 and 1960, the music that was made then pre the Beatles, and it feels like these people are the pop stars of their day. You know, you you, you start to understand um, the role they played in that period of time. So I think there's always a there's always a chance of, of doing that, and I, so I wouldn't want to sort of write anyone out of the out of the story. Um, but it, it just gets harder to do, and you need to really think about what you're trying to say. It's not just a case of, of saying um, regurgitating what someone has told you. I think you need to question what people are telling you, and if, if it's not right, and if it doesn't tally with the facts, I think you need to, you know, politely bring that up yes. and, and try, you know, just try and get them to think about how things might have happened and veer away from that well-worn after-dinner anecdote. Some acts almost resist it. Uh, I remember tuning into Mark Radcliffe's show in 2004 on Radio 2, and he started the Bushometer, the number of consecutive days that Kate Bush did not appear on the show, and he put up a post-it note, and it would rise to the ceiling. And then... King of the Mountain comes along and Kate gives Mark the exclusive interview and the album is great. Under the Ivy was your book written in 2010. Was this just before Before the Dawn? Yeah, no, I was very, I was very lucky actually yeah. because it, was, it came out in 2010 then she released uh, not one but two records the next year which was a kind of extraordinary uh, stroke of luck on my part. So there was this great splurge of interest really quite quickly after the book came out. So it was updated in 2012. And then uh, Before the Dawn was 2014, I think. And then, so I wrote about, I went to see, I was lucky enough to go and see that that show. And then I, I wrote about that. And another version, the most recent version, came out a year or two after that. So not that I'm claiming any, you know, um, responsibility or credit for Kate Bush uh, being more productive in those years uh, because the book came out. But it was very, very serendipitous that that did happen. And... And the interesting thing is it kind of makes you revise the narrative a little bit. You know, the, when I wrote the book originally, I, it was kind of with the idea that she would never perform again. You know, I felt that was probably a safe bet that we weren't going to see her again. So I, I kind of made a, a number of grand pronouncements about that decision. And, and um, of course, she did perform again. So, you know, the more recent version of the book had to be quite, well, not heavily revised, but there were, there were portions 
where I had to kind of um, reassess uh, my conclusions about her as a performer. And then there's a whole chapter on Before the Dawn. So that's, you know, going back to what we're talking about, writing about living artists, you know, of course they're going to um, evolve and, and hopefully surprise you. She stopped performing because there was a fatality. Uh, one of the crew or one of the performers was yeah, killed. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't draw that. I mean, someone did die at the, at, on the first show of her tour in 1979. I, I, I wouldn't want to make it direct because she she finished the tour, so she she performed you know thirty odd shows after that person uh-huh. sadly died. So I, I, I'm not sure there's a direct correlation actually between that and her not performing. I mean, there's many reasons why she may not. That's interesting because that is the thing that I've absorbed from Kate Bush's career and this career. It's Peter Gabriel, Brian Eno. She's in that class of performer. Less Bowie because Bowie's a bit more outré, but Kate used the media, i.e. stage and screen and record, to build this brand. And she was able, I don't know how she got the record company Every week they must have phoned her and she said, no, 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 it's coming, it's coming. And then five years later, there's the kick inside or the red shoes. She took, she was able to take her time. And I don't think off the top of my head, anyone else was allowed that luxury of a gentle contract that meant you could produce art when it was ready. That took a while and she did kind of earn that right, I think. You know, the, the, the kick inside was the first record and she followed it up within... 10 or 11 months with Lionheart and then followed up with Never Forever and did tour in between there. So in the beginnings of her career, there was that conventional uh, trajectory, really, where she's she's putting her albums pretty quickly and she's performing live and she's going on to pop shows and the San Remo Festival in Italy and flying around Europe and doing promotion until she really was in a position where she didn't have to do that anymore or was able to say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. And that took four, you know, four or five records, really. And I suppose that was the time by the mid eighties where people were taking three, you know, two, three, four years between records. And the Hounds of Love was such a huge success. Um, you know, the singles were such a big success that I think it gave her permission not to do that. And the live thing is just really interesting because I think, as you say, she's as a conceptual artist. I feel that that nineteen seventy nine tour, extraordinary as it was, probably just didn't quite satisfy her and probably took an awful lot out of it because she was kind of in, in charge of all the processes of the dancing and the, the visuals and the music and the performance. and it. So all of that, you know, for two or three hours every night, is a huge undertaking. And I think she felt that she could convey some of those ideas, you know, with the age of video coming along right after that. You know, she can convey those ideas much more readily through the medium of film and video, which, which she did. You know, she's one of, the, I suppose, one of the great video artists of the 1980s. Yeah, and so there, I think there's a lot of reasons at play, and just being in control of the sound of the music and how it how it comes across in the hall, you know, all those things which she's very meticulous about and and can control in the studio, and you can't do so much on stage. Um, and her return was just such a blindside, you know, such a surprise. And I think a lot of it had to do with her son, you know, her son uh, Bertie was, you know, part of a big part of that show, and had reached that age where he could kind of see his mother perform and see what she did and be a part of it. And I think. There's always these, you know, non-visible reasons in a way. You know, we, attrib- we can attribute um, motivations to artists based on what we know um, and on, you know, commercial or, or um, professional ideas. And quite often it's it's a bit more personal than that and a, a bit stranger than that, what, what motivates them to do certain things. Um, so, yeah, she's an extraordinary artist in that she has always kept, you know, she, she fought to get control of her work and then held on to it really very tightly. When it comes to new music, what are you listening to this month? Uh, I've been listening a lot to the new Joan Shelley record, which I think is, is absolutely wonderful. She's she's just a beautiful songwriter and a, a minimalist in the kind of American roots tradition, but who does something. There's a shimmer around the edges of what she does that is, is incredibly compelling and engaging. So that's someone I've been listening to a lot. I love um, Aruj Aftab, who's a a New York-based Pakistani singer and, and writer um, who I saw in Glasgow fairly recently. And she has this twist on sort of Sufi devotional music, but it's, it's jazzy, it's sort of torch-songy. So, yeah, she's, I think she's just absolutely extraordinary. The, the Nick Mason's now got his Saucer Full of Secrets uh, live band who, who performed the early uh, material of, of um, Pink Floyd, and uh, I went to see them a couple of nights ago. And they, they were really fun. 
Yeah, early Pink Floyd, like early Fleetwood Mac. It's it's a they're building the foundations of what would become what the record labels wanted. I'm now old enough to know that the record labels want one thing, the acts want another, and then the record is a compromise. But it is amazing still that you get well, maybe not now. Maybe you don't get great art now because the collapse of the record industry has meant a lot less money. I was watching some videos from the mid-90s from the hip-hop era and I just thought, because they had the money to make a million-dollar promo video. That money is just not there anymore. And people yeah, people want the song, not the video. Well, people want all sorts of things and you definitely get great art now. It just depends how invested you are looking for it and whether you're expecting it to be front and centre of, of of our culture or not, you know, it, it, it's fragmented and it, it will be it will find its place. Um, Catherine Joseph is someone else who's just released a, a fantastic, a fantastic record. It's, it's great art, unquestionably. Yeah. But it, is, is it going to sell two hundred thousand copies? No, it's not. Um, how many records do anymore? But it will find its place, and um, I think that's all you can ask for now. It, it, it finds its listeners, it finds its place, and it's made. Um, with the right intentions, I don't think all records are compromises. I think at the top of the uh, top of the game, you know, when you're that's what I meant when you've got yeah, millions of dollars that, involved. It, yeah, sure, but I mean that that's uh, that's only part of, of what music is about. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't say I listen to a lot of music at that kind of end of the spectrum so much anymore, you know. But um, the records that may have you know may have sold fifty thousand or hundred thousand copies twenty years ago or thirty years ago. Now we're selling five thousand copies, so you just have to. That, that's a very sad fact of the current industry, I suppose. But but it's still there, and it's no less great for fact that it doesn't sell that many copies. Well, yes, I suppose. Well, it's it's not good for the artists themselves who would want a house. Johnny Cash had his own cabin. In 2011, your book, The Resurrection of Johnny Cash, came out. So it was a few years after Walk the Line. It was eight years after both he and June Carter had died very close to one another. And much as with the Simple Minds book, you've chosen a period to focus on. Much like Willie Nelson was, or Simple Minds, Johnny Cash was in the doldrums for a time. And it took Mark Riley, Lard, the boy Lard, and others, to rehabilitate... But not rehabilitate, but kind of rescued him from the cabaret circuit. That must have been an amazing book to write. It was. It was a very kind of. There's one book I think I've written that had a, that, that had a kind of thunderbolt, lightning bolt, light bulb moment of. This is a really fascinating little narrative. You know, a narrative within a narrative. I, I wouldn't dare, nor would I want to write a book about the whole life of Johnny Cash, um, or certainly not approach it in that way. You know, but because when people become iconic to use that awful word it obliterates an awful lot of the subtlety and a lot of the complications of their life and you see it happening now with david bowie who now you would think never released a bad record you know and was always beloved and never put a foot wrong um so with johnny cash yeah i mean it, it was this this memory or, or a reading i think a review of him playing at he was playing at pontins i think in bogner regis he, and i thought my goodness um that is not how we think of Johnny Cash now. It's him kind of labouring around, you know, a holiday camp. And so it was about a corrective, really, or, or about about how an artist can be two things at once. How the kind of mythology and the legendary status of someone like Johnny Cash can kind of backfire on them when they're a bit older and they're not being able to produce the music that they wanted to produce. And from that came, the, as I say, the resurrection of Johnny Cash. You know, he went on to then make these American recordings, which were these extraordinary stripped-down records, which were, you know, kind of lauded as being authentic, but they weren't authentic at all, really. They were they were very, very uh, canny and very aware of the, the mythology of Johnny Cash, and they played into that. And it was it, it was very smart of Rick Rubin who produced that to um, to understand what would work for Johnny Cash at that time. And as you say, you know, he was picked. There was this great tribute album. Called Till Things Are Brighter, which had had all these '80s indie artists, you know, Mark Harmon's on it as well, but the uh, the Mekons are on it, and Mark Riley's on it, and these great underground kind of you know indie artists from the '80s who are all performing Johnny Cash songs. And he actually, you know, he he was aware of this, and he picked up on this, and there was this idea that actually I am a countercultural figure; I'm not a mainstream entertainer, or at least not completely. And so there's this period in the late '80s and early '90s where he 
and taps back into something absolutely fundamental about who he is and what he represents in the culture and then starts to live up to it. But even then, there's this, there's this incredible parallel going on. He's, he's making these records with Rick Rubin, but he's performing with his cabaret band. So he's still playing this pretty tired old show. Um, it's a bit hokey. And yet he's making these records which are appealing to people like Johnny Depp, you know, and he's appearing in the Viper Rooms, and he's, you know, River Phoenix and Trent Reznor are, are people that he's covering. And so it's a, it's this kind of schizophrenic thing that goes on when artists can get older, where you're you're one thing but you're also something else. And so that that was a kind of fascinating way into Cash for me, which is, you know, could be one of those people where you say, well, what else, what is is there else to say about Johnny Cash? And he's he's become mythologized over the years, um, and hopefully there was something kind of new in there. Robert Hilburn wrote a big, long biography of Johnny Cash, or JR, and there's a, there was a lot of interest 20 years since he passed away next year. Um, I got through the first term at Edinburgh University with his version of Tell Him God's Gonna Cut You Down, which was every cliché about Johnny Cash's voice from when he was in his 60s and 70s, when they brought out the fifth version of American, the American series. It sounds like the earth that he grew up on. And that's why we appreciate Johnny Cash. Whereas, conversely, I mean, he was a primetime star on American television. He was friends with Billy Graham. He, he did a documentary about Israel, which is fascinating. Uh, but people will know him as the guy who did the Trent Reznor cover. It's his song now, Hurt. I think Trent Reznor has given it to him. But you've written about country music. Uh, I read a piece that you wrote about homosexuality in country, and you must have written it about 2014. It was Chidi Wright... Billy Gilman. Brothers Osborne are in the UK this week. TJ Osborne is an openly gay singer. Um, there has been progress in it. Are you following what's going on in the independent country scene still? Not, not, not hugely, no. I must, I must admit, I mean, that to me was a, was a really interesting... It was the Lavender County story that I think you're referring to that was in The Guardian. I wrote for The Guardian, um, which I thought was a fascinating story. I don't keep up that much with contemporary country music, I must admit. In fact, you know, my enthusiasm's wax and wane generally musically. I, I, I don't listen to a lot of country these days. Yeah, I don't know if you find that, that you kind of, there's certain types of music that you, you listen to at a certain period in your life and then uh, set aside for a while. Yeah. Uh, I have a big affiliation with the record In Rainbows by Radiohead. If yeah. I came out in my second year and I would go to the Microlab in George Square and walk back at about two in the morning with House of Cards by Radiohead playing in my ears and I never really put it on now because it is so affiliated to that moment in my life when I was 20 and I'm completely unsure about where life was going uh, but looking at Arthur's Seat and Salisbury Crags and walking through the meadows which is not far from you must have made that journey hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times oh yeah yeah and, and still do yeah that's, a, that's yeah. my kind of route into town yeah just before we went on I thought we must have been in the same room several times because I lived in Edinburgh for five years between 2006 2011 I remember a guy who was in my he was on my classics course and he used to come out of beginner's Greek and I went into advanced Greek and I knew he was a songwriter he dropped out after a term and the week I graduated Mumford and Sons were number one in Australia with Little Lion Man Marcus briefly lived in Edinburgh oh really yeah didn't really turn up to lectures, but when you're that rich, you don't need to. Um, there was that period of time where they, someone called it Stadium Folk. Do you remember the Lumineers who have got a record out this month and of Monsters and Men and Mumford and Sons? Now we seem to have kind of the teenage girl, Olivia Rodrigo, Gail, Tate McRae, the other one, Mimi Webb. They're all the same product. You must now just look at commercial pop music a bit less nowadays but it's a business it's, a it's, always, it's, always, it's always been a business john i mean i think that that's to hark back to some golden age where it wasn't a business is i think naive and and i listen to those records because my, my daughter listens to those people and i think um they're as good or as indifferent as any other big act has been over the last 60 years i, I don't see a decline really in in the industry in that sense i think it's always been about what appeals to you know pop music is really about what appeals to younger people mm -hmm. and speaks speaks to them and those are to speak to 
a lot of the younger people I know and, and, and good luck to them. And yeah, it's a business. It's about selling product. Uh, Yes, there's a guy today, we're talking on the 6th of May, Jack Harlow has put out an album. He's number one in America at the moment. George Harrison, the Jack Harlow of his day, who was 17 when he became a Beatle and quit, was it like 25? The Beatles split up when George Harrison was 25. Is the subject of your, well, revised, it's over 600 pages, Behind the Locked Door. It is a doorstop of a book. Did you read all the Beatle book in researching that book? Because it took four years to write. It took a while. Uh, yeah, I read, I read most of them, but it had quite a simple founding kind of principle behind that book, which was, well, there was a couple of things. One was, it's kind of weird <clears throat> for someone who was a member of the biggest band in the world ever, that they're kind of underrated and slightly, I felt slightly unknown. So that I felt there was something to say. You know, so I still thought there was somewhere I could sort of plant a flag and go, uh, well, have you looked at this? And also... You know, my idea was to look at whatever happened to George Harrison entirely through his eyes, um, to, to focus on what he was doing at that time, not to get distracted by uh, the Beatles uh, in, in, you know, en masse. I didn't want to write 40 words about Sergeant Pepper because, frankly, George Harrison wasn't all that involved in, Frank, in, in Sergeant Pepper to the extent that, that other, other musicians were. So it was about keeping George front and centre of his own story and in some ways not divorcing him from the Beatles. But, but as you say, he was in his mid-20s when that band ended. He had a lot of life to live afterwards. And my book, uh, you know, less than half of my book is devoted to um, the period up to when he leaves the Beatles and then there's an awful lot more after that. And, and maybe it's a, a recurring theme, but when things get so big... They can they can obscure and and uh, you know George the quiet one the dark horse all that stuff I felt was pretty reductive you know he had a really a really kind of wide and large hinterland uh, in his life that wasn't anything to do with music as well and that fascinated me so um, but yes you have to go there you have to go I'm not a beetle I'm not a beetle maniac I'm not a beetle file really um, I, I I love a lot of their music but I'm not someone who you know, bought the bootlegs and listens to the 14th take of Sexy Sadie to, to find the difference yeah. between that and the 13th take. You know, that's not really my area of interest. So um, so it, it was about trying to and almost rescue him from that, that band and that narrative and, and uh, paint him as a human being in his own right. There was an extract about Wonderwall music, which you call... Uh an example of George's musical curiosity taking flight. This was a soundtrack to a film where he had to match it up with the film footage. It was a prototype world music album. I wonder if Within You Without You and Love You Too came out today in a different era, would George Harrison be done for the same things that musicians who cross-pollinate ideas from other continents would be criticised for? And... Um, an addendum to that isn't it nonsense we're all human what sort of crime would he be charged with nicking make it the same thing that paul Har paul simon got done for with graceland well i think graceland was slightly different because it was about breaking a, an embargo wasn't it in terms of working in south africa so there yes. was a... yeah perhaps malcolm mclaren going to the bronx and getting double dutch out of it yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, possibly. I don't know. I mean, I think the thing with George was it was always, you know, he always invested uh, himself in the music in a, in a very kind of genuine way. And he always used genuine musicians from, you know, from the places he worked in. So there was loads of musicians from the Indian subcontinent who, who worked with him and I think would say, you know, had got a huge amount of exposure and... and um, and probably in some in some cases changed their lives because of the fact that George Harrison was was in that music. But I think it depends on what, how you, how you're using it. You know, he he immersed himself very deeply in that stuff, and not just musically, but um, culturally as well. I don't think there's any way you could sort of question his his love and, and passion for it and the, and the genuineness of that. Um, how that would play out today, I've, got, I've absolutely got no idea. Yeah. Really. <laughs> We've seen recently that Ed Sheeran did not nick O-Y, O-Y, O-Y. George Harrison yeah. did nick My Sweet Lord, Harry Krishna, from the Chiffons. Given 
the precedent of blurred lines where you can nick the vibe of a song or a rhythm. It's no surprise that record labels are shoring up catalogue than promoting new acts. Does that sadden you? No, no, it doesn't, it doesn't sadden me at all. Um, it's about a lot more than that, probably, in terms of, of shoring up catalogue. Um, I think catalogue is, is the treasure trove now of, of the music industry. There's so much of it, and it's, it's, it's cheap to produce, and it's clearly, if we're buying it, and, and if people are going to buy a five-CD set full of all the outtakes and detritus and leftovers from an album they love, if that's what they want to hear, then the music industry will keep producing it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I think it, I, it's not an area that I'm very interested in. I, I'm not really that interested in, unless I'm kind of working on something specifically. I don't really want to hear, uh, I don't want to see the workings of a musician um, particularly. I'm not, I'm not an academic in that way. I like to hear stuff that they wanted to put out originally. How they got there can occasionally be interesting, but, but often it's just them playing the same song slightly you know in a slightly varied way but it's it's become the great big pot of gold i mean the bob dylan industry now yeah and that's that's an example of an artist who's still living is uh you know people are far more interested in the version of bob dylan um from 40 or 50 years ago than they are in the one now or they're equally interested in both and if you can pull that off if you can have two parallel careers of, of uh, the past being kind of reinvented and recurated while you're also making new music and, and playing live then of course you're going to do that but it, it is it does play a kind of trick you know you are kind of constantly reinventing um what we maybe know to be true which is the records that we have that were released four years ago that is the object that we kind of base our assumptions on for an artist and so if you you're constantly kind of shifting the ground with with demos and outtakes and stuff then it it creates a moving picture and i think that's probably very useful for the industry because it, it means you can just keep trying to get more of that stuff and, and it complicates the picture which i'm always interested in but um it's no great surprise i'm not sure it's got an awful lot to do perhaps with songwriting credits or, or you know that that area of things i think that's just a lot of opportunism really at the moment yeah. is that and the way people write you know that there's so many people involved now in writing songs i think that that uh, and that it's compartmentalized to such an extent where, where people are in charge of sections of a song and that things will get recycled probably more than they used to. Um, and I suppose that does open things up to opportunism. And I, th I was pleased Ed, Ed Sheeran won that case. The, the record is broken and it's up to the generation coming through to fix it. Two acts who are no longer with us, uh, one of whom redid his catalogue. I own a greatest hit set by John Martin remixed. I bought it thinking it was a greatest hit, but it was him. Todd Rundgren's done it before. Bob Dylan does it every night of his life. Just using the same words, but with different music. John Martin, Small Hours, Philip Leonard, Cowboy Song. Were they both authorised biographies? No, uh, no, no, no. John Martin wasn't authorised. Okay. Um, Phil Lynott was kind of, was, was yeah, retrospectively authorised. I mean, I, I wrote to... Uh, it's Lionet, by the way, and I always get pulled up by, by um, people who know him and, and uh, friends and Irish family. It's Phil Lynott, not Lynott. Uh, I know it's one of, it's like Bowie and Bowie. It's always, um, there always seems to be some discrepancy about how it's pronounced, but I'm assured that it is Philip Lynott. Um, the truth is Lynott, yes. Okay. Well, he said, you know, because I lie not, he said, ironically. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt, again, I felt there was a, there was a, a, a really interesting story to be told. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story, and it's probably, maybe out of all my books, it's the one that's kind of least pulled from my record collection. Not not that I don't love Thin Lizzie and a lot of those songs, but they, they wouldn't be a massive, or weren't a massive part of my listening experience, you know, prior to that. But I did feel, I, I loved his voice, I, I loved his writing, I loved the way he carried himself, I loved the fact that he was you know, one of four black kids in Dublin in the 1950s. Um, how do you go from that to having a statue on the street uh, in that same city, you know, 30, 40 years later? Um, I think you can hear the pain in, in his voice, that you can hear the, the ambivalence, the soul in his voice. So I was beguiled by that and wanted to tell that story. And um, I wrote to his... His wife was, he was still his wife when he died, although they were estranged. Caroline 
I wrote an old-fashioned letter and, and just said, look, this is, I really would like to do this, do it properly, and I'd like to do it with your support. And so it started from there. But again, it was it was a kind of, Caroline's very protective of, of um, that legacy and because they have children who are a bit younger then, I think she just wanted to try and protect uh, that. And, you know, I won't write an authorised book if it's going to have to, if things are going to have to be left out or there's certain conditions on what I can and can't say. So eventually we just reached an agreement where uh, I would write my book and I would send it to her and we could either put authorised on the cover or we couldn't, <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of as simple as that. And Good. thankfully, you know, she she's, cause she's very straight and very honest and, and, and she was uh, she was happy to do that. And I think very, she was very moved by that book. So I was really, really pleased with that. So, so yeah, it's, it's authorised in the sense that um, she opened a few doors to me, um, but uh, it wasn't signed off. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Whereas John Martin, a very complex character, to say the least, also has family still alive. Yeah, it's difficult. I and mean, it's difficult with both uh, both Lina and um, John Martin because, you know, the, the estates, you know, the, the, because of the way they live their lives in some ways, and particularly maybe John Martin, there's a lot of damage left behind and there's a lot, it's not necessarily harmonious what's left behind amongst, you know, family and friends and people. Things can be quite um, tricky. That can prove difficult. And in the case of John Martin, it was, it was never authorised. But, but I did speak to his children, spoke to his first wife, Beverly. And again, you know, you want to, I mean, I love his music. There's, there's just this great kind of profoundly powerful dichotomy in, in John Martin this great rage, great destructive streak to himself as well as a lot of other people around him. And this great quest for beauty, you know, and, and love, uh, which you hear very much in the music. And, you know, I knew enough about John Martin before I even wrote the book to know that, that that's, a, that's an interesting area to explore. I also thought the cultural moment, you know, it's, it's interesting how we deal with these people now. And, and, you know, we used to give artists an awful amount of, a huge amount of leeway terms of their behavior because they you know they, they, they created great art or they put something beautiful back into the world and i think we're we're kind of moving away from that slightly simplistic view of it and, we, and i wanted to write a book that was very uncompromising in terms of laying out what this person did how he behaved the, the price a lot of people paid for the beauty that we hear when we put on solid air i'm not i'm not trying to say people shouldn't listen to that music i'm not making no judgments at all and you know how you negotiate that dance between the reality of the human being and the the art that they make is entirely up to you and i think it's i still play john martin records and i still love them but i do it with a knowledge of of, um the toll that exacted on Mm. on a huge amount of people i spoke to ian winwood whose book bodies is one of the books of the year in any genre and i was also going through all my cds to catalogue them over bank holiday and I got to L in the 2000s and I had Lost Profits start something in my hand. And I thought, do I throw this away or do I look at the musicians who aren't the singer of Lost Profits because they're on there as well? I've kept the CD. I don't know if I'm ever going to play it again. Peter Doherty has a memoir coming up. You are not going to read it because you have said the Libertines rise is baffling but inevitable. These were glorified buskers who inspired the Fratellis and Razorlight. So can you just confirm that you're never going to go anywhere near any of the publicity for Pete Doherty's book? No, I think I probably will. It's, it's coming out. It's got the same publisher as my Simple Minds book, I think. Uh, ah. I think it's Constable. Um, oh, no, no, that, that wouldn't stop me reading a book uh, about someone like Pete Doherty. No, not at all. Um, I can scarcely recall watching that diatribe. It's there. If you look, as I did, if I I went through your Guardian pieces. um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I remember that it was a kind of, um, yeah, a a foreign against, I think, piece on uh, the Libertines. No, I'm not a great fan of Libertines. But, um, no, I will will read anyone who's got an interesting uh, life uh, and it's, it's presented interestingly. I will read. You know, it's inter- we are living now, and I think in terms of music books, we're living in the age of. Well, I think there's a there's a huge amount of great stuff out there, but we're kind of living in the age of memoir. You know, it's now really about people telling their own stories. That that is is where the bulk of these books now are coming from. Um, you know, I like to make a case for the, for for the for the erudite and critically rigorous 
biography. I think there still is a place for that, for, for writing about somebody. There's less scope now than there used to be, and I think artists are now writing more about themselves. Um, so it is it is about finding an interesting take on what is essentially an old story, you know, most of the time, or finding art. You know, the, the Fat White Family book that just came out, that's really interesting. Is it? You know, that, that, okay. Well, well, I mean, I, I'm not even talking about the content so much as how, how the how it happened and the fact that that's a Sunday Times best-selling book about a band most people will never have heard of. Yeah. But if, if you can if you can orientate something properly at, at the right audience who you know will be interested in it and you tell the story well, which I believe the story has been told, then um, there is definitely a market out there. You know, and, 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 and John Martin actually is a good example of that. You know, there's quite a few publishers who didn't feel there was a market out there for a book on John Martin. And I felt strongly... But there really is, you know. It might it might not be finite, but it's or infinite rather. But it's it's strong and, and it's and it's definitely there. And um, if there's enough to say about it, then yeah. So I think I think we're in quite a good place in that in those terms. But um, it's all now depending on how you know how you tell the story. You can get books by enormously successful artists that really don't don't sell because they have nothing really to say. It's also how you, it's how you you know it's whether you write it yourself. It's whether you get the right person to collaborate with you yeah. or whether, you know, people can smell it now, I think. If you're just, you know, sitting down for four or five hours and just rambling about your life and then someone knocks that into a book, it, it, it doesn't really fly anymore. I think people are wise to that. So it's about getting the right voice and how honest you want to be. Um, I mean, the problem with memoir, in a sense, is that you, you can leave a lot out, you know, or you forget a lot of things um, because it's just... It's your life, so you're very much entitled, obviously, to write about it. But it's, it's. I don't think it's any less credible to, to write a biography from the outside perspective, as long as you do your homework and you do it with um, care and, and responsibility. Uh, it can be just as revealing in many ways. Yeah, so eight books. Elvis Costello, Willie Nelson, Kate Bush, Johnny Cash, George Harrison, Philip Linet, John Martin and Simple Minds, and then I Shot a Man in Reno. So that's nine you know how Quentin Tarantino said he'd make ten movies. What's your tenth book going to be? Uh, it's going to be on Talk Talk, the, the, the band uh, Mark Horace's. Ah, interesting. Are you aware of the presence of a book by Ben Wardle? Yeah, of course I am, Johnny. Yeah, I've got it right in front of me. Um, yeah, it's going to be a book, a, a bit like Simple Minds. It's going to be. Um, it's going to take a certain perspective on it, and it's it's not going to be a biography. Uh, I tip my hat to Ben for writing, a, you know, an actual proper biography of Mark Hollis from from birth to death but uh, this will not, this is a more about exploring those four uh, four records really from Color of Spring Spirit of Eden Laughingstock and, and the, the the solo record that Mark Hollis made and um, the kind of world the song world that, that, that those records describe so it's, it's more of a work of criticism really in many ways um, very good um, so that will be the next book yeah yeah, I mean, it was a very much a rhetorical question. I'm talking to Ben next week, and in fact, um, talking to Will Birch this afternoon. Wonderful. Whom you will know, because I think either he credits you or or it was Ben who credited Will Birch. But um, I will be asking him about the exception to prove the rule about how an older act discards the melodies first of all. I just watched a Nick Lowe uh, concert. And he is a genius. He's a he's a yeah. top melodist, and also doesn't hog the limelight. The music speaks for itself. I I, I'm a, I couldn't agree more. I'm a massive admirer of Nick Lowe. I just and I just love the way he carries himself. You know, he's got that beautifully understated kind of wry wisdom. I think they call him the headmaster of rock. Don't ah, they? yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I've spoken to Nick many times. He's always he, he, he's a fond of great stories, and he's a beautiful songwriter. And yeah, the, the way he's evolved. Um, into this incredibly kind of elegant um, spare songwriter, I think is uh, is a real lesson. And he's always he always say, I don't I don't want to make them too good. I don't I don't want to record them too well because I want someone else <laughs> to record yeah. them and make me loads of money. Um, I thought that was quite clever. Um, yeah, no, Will, uh, Will Birch's book is on my it's, it's again it's on my to do or to read list. Um, but I've heard it's very good. Ah. Oh. Well, um, I was waiting for the payback and it came out and I've started this music library. You're one of the um, first people to come into the music library. 
Um, I'm trying to get most of the people you've shared um, newspaper space in it. I spoke to Michael Han the other week, right. um, whose new book on uh, Nawabam is fab. Uh, and I hope that um, the Talk Talk book will come out next year. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It should, yes, it should be 2023. Yeah, that, that's, that's the plan. Yeah. Great. So that gives me a year to really dip into what makes Talk Talk such a an epochal British band. And uh, I can't wait, well, to come up to Edinburgh again, for firstly, and secondly, to dip into your catalogue. Uh, because you've got a greatest hits now, and you've just waxed lyrical about it and thank you very much for taking time out of um what i imagine is a very busy weekly schedule when it comes to writing articles where are we going to see your byline next this month up in the spectator next week uh uncut i'm usually in there with something or other there's actually it's a piece in the current radio times about radiohead yes um yeah there's a there's a radio show coming up about uh, okay Computer. computer 25 years Um, yeah yeah and how it kind of uh predicted our current um our current age so it's less an album of the 90s more an album of the 2020s Correct. That's, that's what i've heard that's, yes yeah. yeah that's the premise so i spoke to sarah hall who's presenting that uh, the, the writer sarah hall uh, and did a little piece of the radio time so that's in there nice. so, so yes yeah. that, that's on uh, bbc sounds when this goes out now who's your favorite music writer ever i'm gonna say peter Guralnik. good um, answer yeah good answer he's got a memoir out now he has, yeah. I think that's someone you could really aspire to in terms of really doing the doing the legwork and also then, you know, doing something very elegant uh, with it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of his writing. Elegant legwork, the Peter Goralnik story. <laughs>